Welcome to Arcade Attack. <laughs> A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Sonic Boom! Phoenix Bad Welcome back, listeners and even viewers on the Arcade Attack podcast. I've got another super guest on today's show, a true gaming legend, American McGee. America, thank you so much for your time today. You know, you've You've, you've seen it all. You've done it all. Um, you know, part of id Software, launching the, the Alice Games as well. Really is an honor to have you on today's show. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Nice to uh, be here today. Thank you. Um, before we talk about your kind of career in gaming, would you be okay to sort of start off about, you know, maybe explaining your rather unusual name? I mean, it's a, it's a cool name, I have to say. I, I love it. But <laughs> it's, it's quite iconic. It's quite unusual. But how, how did you get your name, if you're happy for me to ask? I wish I had one, you know, concise answer for that or one consistent answer for that. The problem is that everybody that I talk to about this in my family, they all give me different answers. Right. Um, so some of them will say that it was my mom's idea because she knew a woman uh, at university who had, I think, named her daughter America, which is a very common name in Central and South America, by the way, um, for girls. And then my mom said uh, that, you know, she thought that, you know, American would be a good version of that for, for a boy. Um, I also heard that my father saw it on a wall somewhere in the hospital. Um, uh, my mom told me she also was thinking of the name Obnard, O-B-N-A-R-D, which means nothing. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, look, it was the 70s, I think, is the best way to describe what was going on, right? A lot of pot smoking, a lot of hippie free love you know this kind of thing that's probably the the easiest way to uh to describe it no yeah fair enough it's yeah very cool um while you're growing up then did you play a lot of video games did you have any consoles or or computers in your house and do you have any particular really good early memories of, of video games well I, I grew up pretty poor um so it wasn't until i think i was 13 years old that i got my first own kind of computer thing, which back in that, that era was a Timex Sinclair 2000, um, which was essentially like a, a calculator you could plug into your television, you know, so you weren't really going to be playing a lot of games on that. But um, I think my earliest, you know, introduction to video games was uh, arcade machines. You know, I'd walk home from school and there'd be Dig Dug and there'd be uh, Moon Patrol and there'd be, you know, Asteroids. And I mean, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, Defender, like that era, right? Um, so, so in terms of the kinds of games that, you know, I eventually got into making, obviously there wasn't anything on a level of sort of graphics or storytelling to make me think like, oh, I want to go on to make games. Um, but, but around, you know, in my, in my teens, um, I did finally get a Commodore 64 and I began Oops. poking around making my own, you know, sort of little dungeon crawlers and things like that. Um, but even at that at that age, I, I, I can remember playing games and thinking games were fun, but I, I just didn't have this notion that like I myself would go on to make games. Um, I, I was very interested in storytelling and in writing, um, but it just hadn't crossed my mind that like that was a that was a path that I could even pursue. Fair what what sort of stories uh, were you interested in back then? Were you were you reading a lot of uh, classic novels and things or? 
Oh yeah. I mean, as a kid, I was a voracious reader. In fact, when I, cause I, I never finished high school um, mm-hmm. due to family uh, instability, I guess would be the word. You right. know? <laughs> I, I was out of the house at a very, um, very young age and I was forced to drop out of school as a result. But when I dropped out of high school, uh, I remember getting in trouble as the last thing as I was leaving because they had opened up my locker and several lockers next to my locker where I had been stealing books from the library right. and putting them in the locker. And I had a bunch of them at home and I think they figured that out. And they're like, could you bring back all the books that we think you stole? <laughs> um, but I, you know, at that time I was a big fan of a range of things. Um, you know, if it was sort of classical horror, like Mary Shelley mm-hmm. or Edgar Allan Poe, but I was also really into science fiction. I remember in high school, I got really into like Arthur C. Clarke and I sort of then transitioned into Heinlein. Um, so sort of fantasy, sci-fi type of stuff. Um, very big fan of sort of just adventure in general, Robert, you know, Robinson Crusoe type stuff. Um, and I think that that, you know, followed over eventually into the types of stories I like telling, um, you know, sort of yeah. adventure tales, but of course with a very psychological kind of surreal <laughs> twist to them. Oh, we'll talk about those later for sure. Um, again, I don't want to... American, I don't want to get too like personal of your your, your your personal life and things, but I think you said in previous interviews that you did have a bit of un, you hinted earlier a bit of an unconventional childhood. Um, obviously, uh, you know I don't want to bring up bad memories and whatnot, but do you think that did have an influence about how your career, where it took you, and even subconsciously about some of the, the stories and the games you develop and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know I think that we as individuals. Um, much less as creators or storytellers, you know, e- each one of us is a creator. We, we are all storytellers in some fashion, you know, um, that, that's sort of like the point of us being put on this planet is to bring order to chaos to some degree. And the way in which we organize things is itself a function of the environment in which we were raised and the way in which we found to organize the chaos in our lives. Right. And so as an extension of that, like you'll hear it often said that, you know, when you find a storyteller, um, you know, that's successful at at storytelling, oftentimes they're telling the same tale over and over again. And that that tale at its core is something that is is their their story. It's deeply personal to them. Um, And so I, I think that my childhood, yeah, I mean, it was tumultuous. It was unusual. Um, you know, it was creative in some fashion, you know, it was also, there were a lot of destructive elements in it. Um, but it was the exposure to those things and the learning how to overcome those things that gave me my voice as a creator. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I, like one of the things that I'm really big into is, is asking people not to shy away from those things about themselves instead to kind of run towards them and embrace those things as difficult as that may be, because in that process of accepting who you are, that's a transformative process. You get out of that, the, the gold of being a creator, right? You, you get out of that, the stuff that you have to, it's difficult to earn, but it's, it's what makes you have an original or a genuine voice. I mean, yeah, embrace it. You know, what good advice actually. Thank you. Um, I'd love to know, actually, because you said earlier you, you never really thought as a child that you wanted to well, even fall back into video games as, as a job. But and and you said you didn't finish high school. Are you happy to kind of fill in the gaps a little bit about how where, where how that led to? How did you get the opportunity, and where what were you doing before you got into <laughs> video games? 
Sure. Um, yeah, this is before the interview started. I, I mentioned this story has been told a lot. So I'm, I apologize <laughs> to the people who've heard this before, but I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who haven't. Um, yeah, I dropped out of high school and I, I bounced around to a couple of different sort of uh, nonsense, dead end jobs. Um, but I eventually settled on car mechanic because I have car mechanics working in my family. Um, and I had one uncle in particular who took me under his wing and he sort of brought me into the shop where he was working. So I spent some years uh, working in a shop that, that specialized with German cars, BMWs and Volkswagens and Mercedes, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I think I got to be pretty good at it. I mean, I, I like tools. I have a crazy workshop here full of like every tool imaginable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> lathes and 3D printers and, and you name it. So um, I'm very uh, hands-on, you know, mechanical uh, so that it really kind of suited me in a lot of ways. But um, in, the, in the, the midst of that, I happened to move to a new uh, apartment complex in Mesquite, Texas. And that, that is where I met John Carmack because he also was living there. Uh, we became friends. He invited me up to it a couple of times to test this new game they were working on called Doom. And I was really blown away because at the car shop where I was working, I had convinced the owner there to buy a, I think it was a 386. And I was trying to basically digitize their inventory control, their inventory in general. I was trying to build this database for all the inventory in the shop. And so I had been playing Wolfenstein on this thing. Yeah. And little did I know that I'm living in the same you know, compound as, as the guys that, that made this. Um, so yeah, I started going up to their office and at some point John took me aside and said, look, you know, it seems like you're kind of wasting your time working on cars. Would you like to come work in my office? And the original offer was to be there to answer phones. Um, so I was wearing a headset, much like the one that you're wearing. And I was doing tech support. Um, people would call and say, Hey, you know, your game blew up my house or your game, you know, destroyed my computer or whatever. Um, and it would be my job along with Sean green to talk them through their problem and get their game up and running. So that was, uh, that was how I ended up in the door at id. I mean, that's, that's a great story. Um, did you always get on with John Carmack? Was it a, was he a bit of a mentor for you or was it, he got you in, you didn't really see him again or I mean that, that, that how, how would you reflect on that relationship? Yeah, well, I felt that he also took me under his wing. Um, he clearly saw something in me that he wanted to nurture. Um, it may have been my life story that appealed to him somehow, you know, that I was out on my own and struggling at such an early age. Um, I think he also saw my passion for and knowledge about computers. And um, so he he must have recognized something that he, he wanted to try to help out. But um, no one really knew even... I didn't know until I sat down with the game editor um, that I had a propensity, a skill for doing level design. Um, but in terms of my my relationship with him, I mean, yeah, we became quite close. Uh, in fact, we ended up buying houses right next door to each other. So we were neighbors for some years. Um, you know, but I think it's, it's well known that John is a particular, you know, sort of personality type. Um, and, you know, he's, um, I think, uh, for a lot of people in, in the company at that time, uh, it's difficult to get very close to him because he, right. he, you know, really is a workaholic and he's very much constantly in his head around the problems that he's trying to solve. Um, but I, I think that I was, you know, um, 
able to to enjoy some kind of closeness to to his thought process and him as an individual for some years there, uh, especially when we were working on Quake. I worked really closely with him from the initial development of the engine and the editor and the scripting language. Um, you know, there was a, a, a very nice collaboration that took place between the two of us at that time. Um, but, you know, things changed it did, and everybody kind of went their own separate ways. Um, mm-hmm. and these days, I've seen him at trade events and things like that. Um, he's still perfectly friendly and, and happy to see each other. Um, but, you know, I, I now live in China, which means it's there's a lot of distance between me and the people I used to know um, in those days. Um, I've spoken to uh, Bill Raybock before. I don't know if he, he worked at Atari and he was telling the story that I think John Car- Carmack could get Doom on the Atari in a weekend. He managed to get it in the car, and it's it's a very good port. Apparently, well, it's a good port. But it just shows it just shows you the the workaholic and the man he was. I guess <laughs> amazing, really. Yeah. Um, um, so you, id software. Obviously, Wolfenstein came out massive game, but you were working on Doom. Uh, what was your initial role? There was it testing firstly that he sort of rose through the ranks. Is that right, American? Yeah. Yeah. So by the time I had started working there, I. Th- you know, Doom was already released. Oh, right, um, okay. I had tested on Doom, um, but I, I hadn't had any development role on it at all. Uh, then on Doom 2, I actually ended up building maps that, that went into the game. Um, and there were a couple of sort of level packs or map pack type releases. Um, and I I was involved with those. And then I worked on Quake and Quake 2 and some other, some more, you know, sort of level packs. And some other related products and ports and stuff in between. But primarily, I mean, when I talk about people, you know, what, what did I do? Um, you know, it's, it's safe to say like early doom and quake stuff, you know, it's, that was mm. kind of it. Do you, have you played like the most recent doom games, for example, are you a fan of FPS titles personally? Do you- yeah, I did play the most recent one um, for about an hour uh, and you know, it's, so I, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but a lot of games these days become so frantic, um, that I don't get a lot of enjoyment out of it anymore. Um, it's funny, like I, I can really enjoy a game like Red Dead Redemption, um, yeah. you know, the, the new one or, um, Days Gone, um, where it's got these moments of, um, of action, but, uh, you know, you, you're doing a lot of exploring and you're, you're yeah. kind of enjoying the environment and there's a story and things like that. So when it comes to like a, a Doom type FPS um, thing, and it's the same if I try to go back and play a deathmatch now, I don't enjoy the feeling of the adrenaline rush that comes into my yeah. body from playing those types of games. And that's not to knock on people who want to play things like that, you know. Um, it's just that it doesn't appeal to me much anymore. But I did play that most recent Doom, and you know it's interesting to see the the technical art and the the literal you know art of it, the sounds and the graphics mm-hmm. and everything. Um, it's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing where the technology has gone, especially when you go back and you look. If you go back and play Doom right now, and it's at 300, 320 by two hundred, you, you know it's it's impossible to understand that at some point in our history we would look at that and say that that was high resolution and it was incredible graphics and it was amazing and it was immersive because now it just looks like a mess of pixels. It's hard to even understand yeah. what it is you're looking at sometimes. But back in the day when you looked at that, you were 
you were there, you know, you felt it. You were like hairs on the back of your neck and it was, it was crazy. So it's, yeah. um, it's, I think also really interesting to me just to kind of see how our brains were so active in filling in the gaps. Whereas these days, I think you don't have to work as hard to fill the gaps in because it's all done for you. Ah, interesting. Um, I mean, do you reflect very positively, or I suppose differently, uh, working for Id and uh, w- working on Doom and Quake? I mean, it's huge titles, let's be completely honest, compl- absolutely incredible titles. How, how do you feel about looking back at that time? Do you think it did shape your career quite a lot? Well, for sure. But, you know, at the same time, like, if you had asked me this question, you know, one year after I left Id, five years, 10 years, you know, as, the t- as time goes by, I mean, what are we talking? Um, 20, 30 years. Crazy. Isn't it? We're yeah, coming yeah. up on, I was 20 <laughs> years old. I will be 50 this year. So we're talking 30 years ago um, that I was working on those. So, you know, it's kind of funny. I don't even know that I really retain proper memories of the stuff. I think I just re- retain the, um, the, the sort of voice, pattern for recalling <laughs> the event <laughs> because it all seems like such a distant memory now course, that it's, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's hard to remember anything but these very particular um, highlights um, but for sure it had an you know absolutely huge um bearing on on my career back in those days but you know since then i've managed to reinvent myself multiple times over so it's like eh, you know that was cool but i mean that was a really long time ago <laughs> Now, thank you, man. Last question, really, on before we move on to you work in electronic arts and so forth, is um, again, I know you've answered this question before, and I don't, I feel a bit bad asking because no one wants to talk about getting fired, but you did mention, I think, in a previous interview that it was, it was an important event for you, whether it was a fun sure. event, it's a different question, but are you happy just to explain, re- reiterate, and maybe go in a little bit of depth why it was important for you um, being fired by it and what happened, maybe? Well, first of all, I find this topic fascinating simply because depending on who you ask about this, you will get different answers. And I've always tried to remain um, relatively neutral uh, simply for the fact that the the easiest way for me to explain what happened is to say, I don't know, Mm. because it really came out of the blue for me. I'm sitting there working on maps one day, I get called into the art room for a meeting, all the, you know, the owners of it, Adrian and Kevin and John are there and they go, uh, yeah, we want to talk to you about something. We're going to let you go. And, you know, it, it was a real, I mean, it was a shock because it was like, what are you talking about? We just finished Quake 2. And on Quake 2, if you go and look at the, you know, sort of the credits list for that, you'll see that I produced a tremendous amount of content for that, that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not any more or less than anyone else who worked on it, right? And also in terms of uh, quality, if you ask people about the maps that I produced in there, those, those are some of the the maps that people consider their favorites in that game. So, uh, you know, clearly something happened that was over my head. Um, but it wasn't until years later that I, I had other people who were working there at the time come out and say, ah, yeah, you know, this guy torpedoed you and, you know, you Mm -hmm. were, you were done wrong. Um, I don't know about that stuff. Uh, but here's the thing. If I was the victim of, political subterfuge and and there was someone there who managed to get me fired unfairly um i would like to say to that person thank you because <laughs> the result you know the resulting journey 
And it's funny because I, I, I experienced this even before I understood that I might have been um, boop, you know, booby trapped or, or whatever the word would be. I understood this as, as, when I was fired and a week later because the initial reaction to being fired was shock and, yeah. um, and you know, depression and sadness and, and a, just a general kind of what the fuck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but about a week later, I found myself experiencing this crazy sense of relief because I was no longer in a situation where I was expected to go and work for 18 hours a day, six days a week. And remember that was the, that was the default. (laughs) And I had been doing that there for years without really questioning it. And um, there was a kind of psychological pressure going on that I think was very unhealthy for the people that were, that were involved in it. Uh, and not just psychological pressure or physical pressure as well. Right. I mean, fortunately we were young. If I tried to do that these days, I'd just keel over and die. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I, I eventually found myself feeling great relief. And then because of being fired, that ended up in my transitioning to a whole different world. Mm-hmm. I, I ended up leaving Texas and moving to California, which I loved. Uh, I went, I went and worked at EA, which I, I loved. Um, and I got to make a game and put my name on it, which was incredible. So cool. I, was like, I was like, well, again, you know, if there was somebody behind my being fired and their goal, they thought was to make my life poorer as a result, um, they failed. And, and again, I'd like to say thanks because that was a, <laughs> a, huge, a huge favor was done for me. Yeah. And again, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think, you mentioned that it, you got like resilience from your childhood. Maybe that helped as well a little bit and brought you back off the canvas and look, wait, look, look what yeah, happened. You know, I, I hadn't learned that stuff at that age. I was only 24 years old. Oh, right? fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, think about it. Like if you're going to be in a rock star game development company and you're going to be fired from it, I mean, best to do it early on. Right. And then you still, you still yeah. have many years to go it's to bounce true, yeah. back and reinvent yourself and stuff like that. So again, I mean, I, I can't look back on any of that stuff with any sort of uh, upset or anger or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and again, it, the timing was perfect. I mean, you know, it, it ended up putting me on another path that ended up towards lots of great stuff happening. And then that path ended and put me on a different path. You know, there's this Chinese proverb about um, a guy who, uh, you know, he's riding his horse, he falls off and breaks his leg and he thinks that that's a bad thing. But the next day the army comes through and is collecting all of the men of fighting age to take them off and sacrifice them in battle. And so the, the little story goes on and on. Like every time there's a bad twist in his life, he initially thinks of it as something that's not good. But the oh, next right. twist, it's like, oh, it's a good thing I broke my leg that day or I'd be in the <laughs> army tomorrow, you know. Um, so I, I tend to look at life like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't suppose you ever thought where your life would be right now if you weren't fired. Who knows? We'll never know, will we, American? But yeah, I mean, we, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Um, but I, I think it it is potentially um, telling. You know, look look at the different paths that everybody took on from that first generation of id. Yeah. Uh, where where are they today? Um, there there may be some lessons in that. Oh, good on you. Um, let's talk about electronic arts. Let's talk about um, the Alice games because absolutely incredible. Um, Electronic Arts, huge company again. Let's be honest. But how did that opportunity arrive? You, was it you? You weren't 
you know, well, you weren't unemployed for long, I take it. You got a good opportunity. And uh, and what were your early days at, at the company like? Was it was it always Alice or was there other stuff you did before then? Well, it was really, it was really weird um, because the initial path into EA was through Michael Crichton and uh, right. the, the creator of Jurassic Park. Yes. Wow, okay, um, interesting. So I, I got this very strange email or phone call where it was like, would you like to come out to North Carolina? We want you to take a look at this project to know if you want to be a designer on it. And we can't tell you what it is and we can't tell you anything, but we'll, you know, uh, we'll send a plane and, and you can come out. So um, I get there. I, they put me in this tech park. I, I end up in this tech park in North Carolina. By the way, that's where like Epic is. You know, there's a lot of, of um, game development studios or game engine studios there at that time. Um, and so uh, they put me in this white room with no, I mean, it felt weird. It was like a scene out of the matrix or something. And they're like, you know, what, what do you want to drink? And I said, I you know, have a Coke or something. Well, the guy who comes and brings the Coke in is Michael Crichton. And the most bizarre thing about this was, that my, my fiance at the time had been reading this book called Travels, which is his autobiography. And she had given it to me and I just started reading it and I was really engrossed. And I'm like, God, oh, this Michael Crichton guy is really cool. Cause you know, he, he's super smart. He went to university, did his doctoral degree in medicine at the same time that he was writing all these novels that were blowing up, you know, Andromeda strain and stuff like that. And so you know, and then he ejects out of the medical business straight into Hollywood and, you know, invented ER and did all yeah, this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm reading this book and I'm like, this guy's fucking awesome, you know? And so who walks in the door with the Coke? It's him. And I'm looking at the back of the book and I'm like, what the, what's going on here? Like, you know, is this a joke? Um, so they invited me to work on this game called Timeline, which is now you can go and watch this movie called Timeline. You can read the book time, called mm. Timeline. Um, I, so I was involved with the genesis of that, that project in general, like he, I would spend time with Crichton talking back and forth on, you know, how does, what is the story? How does the story work? How do we turn this into a game? You know, stuff like that. So, um, in the middle of all that, then these guys show up and it turns out they're from EA. And at some point they said, Hey, how would you like to be on our team? Because we're, we're going to be the ones to fund this project and and see it turned into a game. And, and we like your style and we like the way you're interacting with this team, but we want you on our side. Mm. And so I went to EA. Um, <laughs> then I promptly told them that this project was terrible and they should kill it. Oh, um, no. <laughs> so, well, because it was the, the developer that was building it um, did not know what they were doing. And uh, I, I, so for, fortunately I, you know, cause I made a very difficult call and I, and it meant also sacrificing what I had in terms of a relationship with, with Crichton, with this team. Um, so it was an expensive, personally expensive decision to make. Uh, but I, I did that. IDOS picked that title up and then they, they published it. And I think it sold like one copy. So it, you know, it, it, it validated the decision I made. Mm. Um, but that was how I ended up at EA. And initially they continued to keep me in this role, <laughs> which was terrible of going out and doing <laughs> essentially like a due diligence or um, a sort of like development review process on struggling developers. 
And I was really good at it. But the problem was I would arrive at these development studios and people would start crying. They'd start running oh, from no. the doors. Because I, I basically was turned into the Grim Reaper. And, you know, primarily because I told it like it was. Like if I showed up and things were busted, I would say this is busted. But a lot of times that meant that their budget was gone and that they died. Um, so that that was my <laughs> that was my first that was my first year at EA, uh, and that was how I transitioned to to EA as well. That's mad. You sound like the, the Doom guy just destroying all the <laughs> potential games. <laughs> Dude, there was one time that I went to a studio in Texas, and they had split themselves inside their their building. Um, the programmer had barred himself behind furniture in his office at one end of a hallway in the building. And the whole rest of the team was in this other room all the way at the other end of the building. I mean, Pete, you know, you, you think you're going to like look at a game and sometimes you're literally talking some dude out of a tree who's lost it mentally, you know, Um, but this goes back to what I was talking about with like, you know, the, the development culture, you know, id where you're working 18 hours a day, a lot of developers, um, we're doing that and are still doing that. And so the pressure is incredibly intense. Um, and and so many, many times when you go to talk to these teams about the failings that were happening within their their developments, um, it comes always back to people. And it always comes back to the interaction between personalities. And especially because with game development, you're almost always dealing with the analytical, technical programmer side and the emotional feeling art side. And it's sort of the, uh-oh, my camera thinks I'm talking to it, but I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that that oil and water combination of, of tech and art, um, when you go to see these projects that are failing, nine times out of ten, it's that issue, personnel issue, that drives those failures. Was there any particular games that you, you helped, in your opinion, launch and make and turn around American, or was it was it mainly bad news, really, in that that sense? Um, uh, I was I was bad news wherever. <laughs> um, but at that time, I was at uh, they they had me stationed at at Max's while they were working oh, on the yeah. Sims. So I I became really close with Will Wright. And I think a lot of people don't know this, but EA in that time tried multiple times to kill The Sims, which then went on to be their most successful, profitable IP ever, right? Um, But while I was there at Maxis, I watched this and I I was in on a couple of these sort of do or die meetings for The Sims. Um, I, I, I won't say I had anything to do with but, you know, I had absolutely nothing to do with the project surviving. That was on Will and uh, Lucy Bradshaw, yeah. who was the, the lead on those things. But to watch this same sort of dynamic taking place, except internally at EA, mm. um, it's, it's not a fun thing. You know, it's not a fun thing at all. No, it doesn't, doesn't sound it. We can, we can laugh about it. But it's not really funny, is it, when you think about it? You know, it isn't. Um... I've got to ask about Alice then. I've got to ask how that evolved. Were you always a fan of the famous Lewis Carroll story? And did, was it always in the back of your mind to make this game? Or what inspired you to, and how did that opportunity come to say, to get Alice uh, into fruition then? So I, I mean, I had read the, the Alice books when I was a kid for sure. Um, I remember having them and I remember reading them and I remember being an okay fan of them. I mean, you know, not like over the top, but I I thought they were interesting. 
Um, when the time came to do my own game, um, this, yeah. this came about because I had said to the guys at EA, look, I don't want to be the Grim Reaper anymore. Um, I don't like being the guy who goes out and, and kills studios. Um, I think they were just trying to sort of search around and figure out what to do with me. And uh, one of the, the president's, you know, studio head guys um, named Rich Hilleman came and said, well, why don't you propose to make your own game? So come up, come up with an idea, you know, make your own proposal and we'll see if we can make it go. Um, and he hooked me up with uh, uh, artist um, Terry. Uh, now I've got Rich's last name mixed up with um, Terry's. Uh, sorry, Terry, uh, you know who you are, but he hooked me up with, with Terry. Terry hooked me up with Norm, a bunch of artists that, that surrounded us, Terry Smith. Um, okay. So he, Rich hooked me up with Terry Smith and Terry Smith hooked me up with Norm, who, who ended up working on the Alice game. Um, and together we were, we, we were kind of ideating, I guess you'd say. Um, I was trying to figure out like, what would be a great way to show off artistically what these engines could do because I'd come out of doom and quake and I felt like everybody does space Marines, everybody does guns and violence, but you know, there's so much more that, that I think these engines could do. And then there was a heavy metal fact Two was a game that was developed by ritual in Dallas. Um, and when you saw that game, cause it was also built inside of the, the quake engine. When you saw that you were like, wow, these guys are really pushing art into this, this space in an amazing way. Um, so I started thinking about like, what's a really artistic, surreal, and, and, you know, it came to me, Alice, but I, at the same time had been talking to some friends and music and art and a bunch of people had brought it up. They were like, man, you you know, you should think about Alice as a, as a video game. Um, so it was, it felt like it was the zeitgeist. It felt like a lot of energy around the notion, but the, the, I guess America me Megafying it as people would say now. <laughs> the the making her into a little goth chick. Um, that was just kind of, you know, the the space that I was living in. Um, for a long time my hair was dark, dyed black and you know, tattoos and um, you know, I was I was really into wearing like all black goth club clothes and stuff. So I think um I I felt that there was always something dark lurking in those stories and yeah, that yeah. Um, a lot of people recognized it. They recognized it as a sort of counterculture drug, um, psychedelic psych psychologic um, type of story. And that no one had really pulled those, those themes out of there um, mm. correctly. So we spent some months doing concept sketches and working on story stuff until we, until we felt we'd nailed it. And when I, when I say, you know, working on it, I mean, we had, we had stacks of art um, with various different ways of rendering a new Alice character. Some of them were bubblegum anime pop and some of them were wild West and some of them, and we did, we went, but we, you know, we kept coming back to this now, you know, she's gotta be this kind of like dark goth something until one day, one of the artists just did this really quick rough sketch and was like, how about that? And I said, that's it. You know, you, we, we found it, we nailed it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting process. And it's set, isn't it? Correct me if I'm wrong. After through the looking glass, after the second book, so it's kind of the third story you could argue, but I mean, was that, were you ever tempted to sort of almost retell the first book in your iconic tale? Or are you always going to do a brand new story? American? Well, I always, I always <laughs> wanted to, to branch her off. Mm. Um, to to have a fork in the path so that 
we we had a, a more blank canvas to work with. Um, and there, there's also issues of just making sure that it's something that that um, intellectual property wise you own, right? So it's it's important when you're doing that to deviate from what everybody expects to some degree. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had a story in there that I wanted to tell related to a, a, a very personal and a psychological journey for this character through trauma and mm-hmm. using the tools of her mental landscape to overcome that trauma because I felt like that was, again, something that in terms of of like what games had done to that point in storytelling, no one had really ever done a psychological horror game um, in that fashion. And, and so I just, I felt like there's a slot, there's a space there that we, you know, we can, and, and it was weird because I just felt like, Oh, this is what I'm here for. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, I'm, I have the tools to do this, you know, um, and, and for it to be unique. That, that was what was really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I know this voice and I th- I can make this unique and it'll, it'll play off of the things that I know how to do. Right. So that, that was how we ended up there. You said it is, it's definitely an original game, but was there any inspiration for it? other video games or media? Obviously I know the Alice stories, but was there anything else that kind of crept in or was it, you know, well, look, there, I remember we put together, I, I put together a folder a folder of inspirational stuff. I mean, there was a Rob Zombie song at that time called nice. Living Dead Girl um, that we would play during these presentations. You know, at that time, I was fairly close friends with uh, Marilyn Manson. And oh, nice. I would go over, I would go over and hang out with him and we would talk alchemy and we would talk about psychology. And he, he actually did uh, a collection of tracks for the original game that never saw the light of day because we never got the licensing figured out. And they were incredible. It was like, it was like psychedelic Beatles era meets Marilyn Manson in Wonderland. And it, they, they were amazing. Um, so there, there was a lot of inspiration like that floating around at the time, you know, musical inspiration, artistic inspiration, like I said. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, again, I felt like there was this weird thing happening where I would sit down with people and, and it just resonated. So, you know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and this was among this group of friends in the film world and the music world and, you know, the game space and writers. Um, so there's, there was a lot of inspiration coming from all over the place. And though that those, those tracks by Marilyn Manson, they had, they never been released and they've always, they under lock and key. That's a shame, isn't it really? Um, yeah. That's, that's lawyers and managers though. It happens all the time. Uh, I've got to ask about those famous Alice statues that are made, I assume, for the promotion of the game. Uh, I think there was three of them. They're pretty amazing. Um, have you ever, I mean, you, do you own one yourself? If there's only three ever made or do you, any ideas? Or I, I assume you're talking about these sort of... Yeah, the life-size. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the the original, there was a pair of them. Um I mean, there, there were like three or four in total made, but one of the pairs of them used to sit in my office at, at, oh, at cool. EA. Um, and then after I left, I saw that they had that pair sitting in the lobby for, for ages uh, when you would come into the EA building in Redwood Shores. Um, I don't know where in the world they are now. Again, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, yeah. 20, 22, 23 years ago. Um, it's quite a long time ago. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, no. Might be a slightly, not rude. Might be a bit of a rude question, really. But you got your name on the title, America McGee's Alice. Um, I, I'm not saying you didn't do anything in the game industry before then, but this was your first big 
I don't know, your first big title. How did you get your name on there, American? I mean, it's a, it's a big deal, isn't it? And I'm, I'm not trying to be rude, but I'd just like to know it's part of the brand and how, how did that happen? So the thing is that that was purely EA, the, the legal department at EA. Right. They were trying to figure out a way to um, clearly delineate their version of Alice from all other potential versions of Alice because it is public domain and at any moment anyone could say here's an Alice in Wonderland and they floated they floated a couple of variations of just on English names you know like Alice in Nightmare Land or you know Nightmare Alice or whatever but they all sounded kind of corny and goofy um, and but they did do you know their kind of um, their due diligence on trying to determine which of them was the least encumbered and would you know be the clearest name for them to own. And clearly because I have such a weird name um, to, to slap those two things together yeah. was going to create a combination that is untouchable basically. Uh, so at the end of the day, that's, that's what they went with. Um, you know, there, there is a side story to this where, you know, the development team wasn't happy about it. The guys at rogue right. um, and they had made it clear to me, they weren't happy about it. So I went back to EA and said, look, there's a whole team of guys here that's working on this game. Uh, you know, they're not very happy about this. And at some point, the EA guys had called me up and said, you tell them not to worry about it. Uh, we're not going to call it that. And <laughs> so it, I went and told them, hey, good news, everybody. Uh, it's not going to happen. And then and then it happened. And it was and it came as a shock to me that they went ahead with it. You know, and I and then I had to go egg on my face back right. to the guys and be like, hey, guys, you know, I'm sorry, but they, they went ahead with this. Of course, you know, for my personal side of the story, aside from being embarrassed and, and feeling a bit undeserving of it, um, it was a positive and a beneficial thing to have happen. That's a great story. And yeah, it's, 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 it's quite amazing, actually, because <laughs> it's part, obviously, it's led, led to many other games in the future, isn't it? That kind of strong branding, actually. Um, right. I've got to ask about the PS2 version of Alice. I, I, it was in development. Um, apparently, it was quite quite close to completion. I, I'm not totally sure, but how come that never came out? Obviously, it did well on the PC. Um, so, so there was. I mean, th- this is you know classic EA. I mean, I, I don't I don't think that they'll be shocked to hear that. But I would say this, or that any developer would say this, but they they do have a track record of like getting developers out over their own skis and then letting them die right like right. i don't know how else to put that i mean they <laughs> they very often will put a developer in a position um that is financially dis you know this you know not it's a disadvantage to be there and then they'll pull the rug out from them and then the guys will they'll just die um and i and i think that you know from their perspective it's just like well it's just business you know it's not um, of course, you know, for the people who are affected by things like this, it's not just business. This is their studio they've built. It's their livelihood. It's it's something akin to family to them. Um, but that was the case with, with Rogue. They uh, were given the contract for the initial development of the game. They delivered on that. I believe that they delivered on that in, you know, in timely fashion and obviously built a good game. Uh, they were then, I think, loaned or given the money or, oh, no, no. They were told they would be given the money to do the PlayStation version. Now, they, this is on them, but they stupidly went out and bought all of the development equipment for 
right. PlayStation 2 development. And they began development because they're like, hey, life is great. You know, we, we just we knocked this out of the park. Why would EA not give us this deal? Well, EA didn't give them the deal. At the end, the, the EA guys decided to, to pull the plug on that. Now, why? I'm not sure because the game went on and it sold quite well. Mm-hmm. It probably would have done very well as a console title, but you have to keep in mind it was it was EA's first ever M-rated game. And I, I had um, heard you know rumor of the then CEO, I think it was Larry, who held the Alice game up in a board meeting and was like, we will not be known for making stuff like this, you know, and was shaking it and was angry. Um, so it could be that somehow the game got made and it wasn't until it was on the shelves that he got word that they'd done an M-rated game. I don't freaking know. Um, which is weird because I used to jog with him in the morning, you know, and it, like there was me with like blue and black hair and spikes and like I'm on the jogging machine and we're like we're chatting. And I mean, he knew I was there. <laughs> he knew I was working on a big game for them. So uh-huh. I never really understood it, but they they pulled the plug and it and it killed the studio. It it just it was just gone. So that was a very very sad thing. I remember getting the email from Jim Molinets at Rogue, which was like, "We're done." You know, EA EA's killed us. And um, yeah, so I, this is just uh, it was crying out for a console release, wasn't it? It was. Let's be it honest. Was. I think it would have done quite well. Uh, I mean, it is still playable today. I think you can get it on Steam. But it, it, do you not think, American, the first game or even the first two games could be re-released, remastered, maybe on the Switch console, bring it to the home consoles? Is there a chance that could ever happen, do you think? Or Yeah, I mean, so I think that the games themselves could do quite well. The problem is I'm not sure if anybody knows exactly where all the source code is. Again, you're talking about a 20-year-old game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's an issue of not having access to the source code. Um, but then beyond that, you know, it's funny because I see comments like this quite often online. People will write a comment like, well, why don't you just remaster it and put it on the Switch? You know, and it's, it's they're very, they're pissed off about it. And you're like, hey, guy, um, I know you think that that's just like an app on your phone and you press the button and it's like remaster and it's on the Switch. But it's not like that, right? I mean, it's a it's a team and it requires time and effort. And so at a minimum, you're, you're talking some big chunk of money to do yes. that work. And then you got to launch it and you got to market it and you got to, and you know, the way EA thinks about this, if they can't do a 20 X return on whatever they put into it, mm. they're not going to do it. Um, but I think that where there is hope for that is if we do manage to make a third game, we could try to bundle that all up in there. We could have yeah, yeah, yeah. a new game plus the bundle of the remastered original in the second game. Yeah, I'll talk about the new game in a minute. Um, uh, some of the sort of boss fights in Alice are pretty cool. What, who's your favorite character, though, from the Alice in Wonderland universe? Have you got a particular favorite character? Um, I I quite like the Mad Hatter in in the games um, because he's kind of tortured. He's kind of uh, discombobulated, I guess would be the yeah. word. He He seems to me to be the person most aware of what it is that's going on and where they are and why they are, you know, and I, and I mean on a deeper level, like they, I think he gets that they're all a function of Alice's psyche. Um, so he's, he's the self-aware part of her brain. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I, I like him for that. And I, and I think that 
because of the self-awareness is kind of what makes him a little bit mad, makes him a little bit crazy. Would you go to his tea party then? I think for a quick drink. (laughs) For sure. I think uh, everyone in their life, uh, this is a coded uh, bit of advice. Everyone in their life should at least once enjoy some of the Mad Hatter's tea. (laughs) Open up up some uh, insights and uh, revelations I think many people need to have. Brilliant. No, thank you. And um, let's talk about the sequel really quickly. So Alice Madness Returns. That that came out a few years later. Was that another EA game or was that your own sort of development? Would you and how do you try and move on from the original? Well, Madness Returns is still owned by EA. Um, because it's all within the same IP. But at that time it was my studio in Shanghai, China, right, yeah. that developed that developed the game, you know, beginning to end. Um, so, you know, that, that was a major undertaking. It was the, I think it was the first time that a Chinese development team had completed an entire AAA console title under one roof, you know, in China like that for a Western uh, console title. Um, and yeah, it was a big project, you know, two years and totally like 300 something people worked on it, you know, a hundred in our studio and then another 200 or so outsource people doing art and animation and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, it was big, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I I think it turned out, uh, pretty good. You know, if you go look at the reviews and you watch people playing it on YouTube these days, I mean, it it seems like it still holds up. People still seem to think it looks pretty good and plays pretty well. So yeah, it's all right. And obviously, um, you moved to China in between the two Alice games. Is that right? In American. And can I, can I ask why it's a massive, you know, huge, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Going to whole the country, whole the culture. What what made you make that big decision? Um, so by the time I decided to move, uh, a couple things had happened. One, in terms of transitions in life, I feel I felt like I'd made a lot of the logical transitions, and that I didn't see any pathways in front of me that that led to more and interesting kind of stepping stones and, and, and adventures and, you know, this kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, I had already done the games thing. I'd done the movie thing. I'd done the TV and TV commercial stuff in, in Hollywood. Um, you know, I, I'd hobnobbed with celebrities and I, you know, traveled the world. And I mean, it was like, I felt like my options in the U S were, were narrowing, um, Every, every time I turned one direction or another, it was like I was kind of being, being channeled into something. And I, I, I still felt I wanted exploration and freedom. Um, but the other big thing was political. Uh, at that time, because I was always very much anti-war, right. um, when I was living in San Francisco, I got really switched on to the anti-war movement. Um, and I started to become very concerned about American foreign policy. And then 9-11 happened. And then you get these attacks, um, you know, unjustified attacks by mil- American military in places around the world. Um, and I, I just got really angry because I, I tried to engage politically with the system. And then I, I came to the realization that the system in the United States is designed as a distraction to give you the illusion that you can do something about this stuff when, in fact, you cannot. Yeah. And I figured that the best way for me to act on my morals and principles was to reduce the amount of money that I was putting into the system. Um, so as an American, as an American citizen with a passport and a social security number, you can never exactly escape taxation. doesn't matter where you go in the world. Um, but you can reduce 
your overall taxation. Um, and I also felt that if I moved to somewhere far away like China, <laughs> I would be, I, I would somehow remove myself from the, 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 the influence of the United States. Now, you know, 20 years later, uh, I don't know if you're paying attention to the headlines these days, but America has decided that China is its number one enemy. And, you know, you've got all of this nonsense going on and talking about somehow trying to go to war with China. And I'm just like, guys, this is really, really, really stupid. Um, you know, having lived here for as long as I have, I can tell you that no one here has any desire for this kind of conflict. And it's really frustrating to me, again, coming back as an American citizen, to watch this insane, out-of-control American foreign policy stirring up trouble in all, all these places around the world. And it just, it's like, it, it never changes, right? And now somehow it's come back home to me here where I live with my family um, here in China. So it's, yeah. So anyway, that was the, that was the other big reason why I left. I oh, thought yeah. I'd get away with it, get away from it, but yeah. <laughs> And when you moved to China, were you always going to sort of continue working in games or were you almost going to have a fresh, were you always, well. I... Yeah, well, I moved. So the initial move was to Hong Kong. And right, okay, I, yeah. I, went to, I went to work for a developer there. I made a really terrible game called Bad Day LA. That's a whole nother story you know, we can talk about another time. Um, s- simple version of that story, though, is that the, the, the guy spending the money demanded something of me and the team that they were incapable of producing, but we went ahead and tried to do it anyway. Um, But the positive that came out of it definitely was not that game, but it was the fact that I then got introduced to the mainland of China. I I visited Shanghai for the first time. And back then Shanghai was like crazy. It was like the wild West. And you had all these people coming from all over the world who were investing and building. And like, it was this crazy blank slate. It felt like this weirdo, you know, uh, barrels with fire, you know, next to glittering skyscraper, like uh, it just, it was, it was bonkers. And I was just like, this is the place I want to be. I could feel the energy of it. Just like, this is where the center of the world is going to end up. And, and I just knew it. Um, so I, you know, I left Hong Kong and moved to Shanghai and in the subsequent, um, how, how I moved here in, um, I think it's been 16 years. Like the whole, you know, the whole world has shifted around now, right? You know, Shanghai um, has become the epicenter of of Asia, um, you know, financial and manufacturing and shipping. I mean, of course, China has now become this crazy global superpower. Um, so it's been such a bizarre perspective to be here and to watch this is like a it's world changing history. You know, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just bonkers. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel like I, I landed exactly where I should be. I still find that the city and the country is incredible. Um, it's inspiring. I just wish that people in the world outside were given an opportunity to really understand how things work here. Because the, the misperceptions um, and the intentional uh, mis, uh, misunderstandings or the intentional misrepresentations of the reality here are are really sad um and it's it's really unfortunate that the the people outside can't know that there's this wonderful country with wonderful people and a wonderful system of government that actually takes care of people first and foremost and nobody knows that because because people in the west don't want you to know 
that the system of government here can operate incredibly well and efficiently and that so many people are being lifted out of poverty and so much is being improved constantly. But it doesn't do the politicians in the West any good for you to know that they're failing while this system is working, right? So, yeah. 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 No, that's really – no, thank you. It, you're right, though. The media attention we get is not always positive about China. Even in the UK, it's it, it's like, oh, you know, uh, the media is being sort of – Well, I saw down and, yeah. you've got uh, Liz Truss coming out with posters that say that she's going to make China the number one focus of her battle to regain UK supremacy or something, right? It's like, okay, well – Hey, bring the opium boats back up the rivers and, you know, force the Chinese gunpoint and, you know, to being drug guys. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, it's I, crazy. I, I think that, um, first of all, you're probably going to get a bunch of comments on this video where people are saying that I'm a traitor or that I'm a CC, CPC shill or I'm paid to say these things. Um, and I just want to say to the people who say that, that we want to write those comments that you're being ridiculous, that, there are different systems in the world that operate differently than what you know. And just because you don't agree with what someone says or with their experience or what they live does not necessarily mean that that person has to be paid in order to say that. I think it says a lot about the people who think that way to project that onto other people that, oh, well, you couldn't possibly think different for, differently from me without some sort of incentive or payment or whatever. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate because when you, when you, narrow your mindset down like that, you, it makes it impossible for the world to be a better place. It makes it impossible for people to understand each other. And I, I wish that people would look at someone like me and be like, hey, there's a guy that I, I respect. Maybe I could trust a little bit, certainly more than we trust the media and the politicians these days. He's got 16 years experience on the ground living in China, and he's telling me that it's not the thing that the Western media is telling me it is. Mm. Uh, and honestly, the only thing you could tell me that I'm perhaps compromised on is if somehow the Chinese government is paying me, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about who pays the bills of the politicians in your country, who pays the bills of the media in your country. Go look that stuff up. If, if it's the pharmaceutical industry and it's the weapons industries, then maybe I'm not the one that you should be mm -hmm. distrustful of, right? So I, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, don't... No, it's really interesting, America. Yeah. It's really interesting getting insight about that different, uh, different, you know, the other side of the world, actually, because it, it is good to hear this sort of stuff. Thank you. Um, you're working on the third Alice game, Alice Asylum. Um, how far is it? You know, is it almost complete? I'd love to know it, when, when can we expect to see it? How is it going to go into different directions? Are you happy to reveal a bit? Uh, yeah, well, so we technically cannot turn on a computer and fire up a game engine around this project at all until oh, we yeah. get permission from EA to do so, which we do not have. But what oh. we do have is a team that's working on pre-production, which means we're doing all the story and all the game design, and we're putting all that into a thing called a design Bible. So when it's done, it's going to be 300 or 400 pages of mm -hmm. Imagine if you took a video game and you turned it into a graphic novel, but in a sort of design format, right? Um, people can go and check it out, what it looks like right now over on my Patreon. It's totally free to do. There's PDF versions of this that you can download. Um, and so you can get a sense for what it is that we're, we're building. And that's going to be finished by the end of this year. And then what we're hoping to do at the start of next year is to take that design Bible plus the budget and the schedule and all the all of the 
pieces that you would need as a potential investor, take that out to people who are interested in funding these kinds of things and secure the funding, and then we can go off to develop the game. Um, these days, we've recently linked up with a developer who can help us to make this all a reality. So we, we've sort of completed um, two of the critical pieces necessary to make this happen. One is the design stuff, which will be finished by the end of this year. Two is the development resource, which we've just linked up with. And three is we've got to go out and get the money, which is what we're planning to do next year. Really good luck, and I've had a, I have had a look on your website actually, and it does look really interesting. I put I'll put your Patreon link in the show notes if people want to check it out. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, it does look amazing. I'm looking forward to it, and I, I guess when it is released, it'll be on all you hopefully all platforms, PC consoles. I guess. Yeah, we 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 hope so. Um, I mean, certainly, I don't want to make anything that's less than what we did with Madness Returns. So yeah. the the ambition is, you know, next gen console, AAA, you know, action adventure, narrative driven single player uh, type game, um, you know, just updated for the modern era, right? Uh, and yeah, I mean, people, uh, please go check out all the stuff on Patreon. We're constantly sharing tons of amazing art and story. Um, and so there's there's plenty of, of stuff there for people to dive into. Ma- massive, sto- you know, spoiler warnings though, because like the whole thing is laid out there, right? Wow. So be careful where you click if you're if you're concerned about uh, spoilers. Good stuff. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, really, I know we haven't got long left, America. I appreciate it, but uh, really quickly, the the Oz game, uh, the Wizard of Oz game you're working on, that that looked interesting. Uh, that almost took you for like another famous sort of story. Uh, with your stamp of, on, on it, of course. But how come that never got completed, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, you know, I think that's my... Um, it, it's it's my cursed project. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of... Um, it's not an albatross, because it's not really dragging me down, but it's like my... I don't know. I'm trying to think of an analogy for something that like you carry around, but you can never finish. What's the guy who pushes the rock up the Sophisius yeah. or whatever pushes the rock up the mountain. <clears throat> That's my monkey, rock up monkey the... on your back as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, I would be fine to leave it alone, but a lot of people out there will come at me online and be like, Hey, you know, do this Oz thing, do the Oz thing, do the Oz thing. So uh, we've tried a number of different restarts to it and we have a new, 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 restart of it that's presented up over on Patreon um, that is also being potentially developed as a TV series. I don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's so weird these days now, like I'll, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll work with my team and we'll do a bunch of art and story and stuff around one of these Oz ideas. And I just feel like I'm building like a cursed thing. <laughs> I think like, yeah. why are we putting energy into this? Cause I know it's just going to like catch on fire and burn down in the end anyway. So <laughs> Because uh, that was what happened. The first one, we did an Oz game. Uh, at that time, we were working for Atari Infograms. That's who was giving us the money. Um, that was uh, a, a studio in um, in Northern California. We had an Xbox, original Xbox playable wow. game of that. You can go on YouTube and find some oh, of nice. the footage. It looked great. Um, it was really beautiful. had amazing music and art. And then Atari ran out of money and they called us up and were like, Hey guys, sorry, we, we, we're bankrupt. So you guys are dead. Um, and then I had a second go at it and I managed to sell that as a film concept and a game concept to Disney through, through, through Jerry Bruckheimer's, uh, production company. Um, you know, they paid us a lot of money for it. Eventually they asked me to write the script and then they just put it all in a box and, 
it just disappeared. Uh, and then I tried again at Spicy Horse. We tried to build something called Oz Zombie, and we tried to do a Kickstarter, and that failed. Uh, it was too ambitious, and it was too unclear. Um, so I, I don't know. American. You know, look, I don't know if you can see this stuff off screen or not, but these days we're making um, plush toys. Oh, that, right? Yeah. Because I'm in China, and my wife is a fashion designer, and we have access to all these um, – all these uh, factories that do uh, whatever, right? You can make anything in China, right? Um, so we originally did one of these plushes as a kind of prop for the Alice character. Um, and it and we sold it and it did exceptionally well. And so then we just started making more and more uh, rabbits of different designs. And nowadays this business is going bonkers, right? <laughs> so when you, when you ask me like, hey, go and make an Oz, I don't want to mess with it. You know, I'd rather just make more rabbits because they, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they sell like crazy. People love them. There's no stress in it. There's no bugs. There's no, uh, you know, updates we have to push out. There's, it's just nothing right. like that. Right. So it's, so I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of enjoying just being in a space where we just focus on design and writing and we let other people, do the game stuff and you know so yeah i appreciate now really interesting um just a couple of quick fire questions at the end then and obviously alice in wonderland famous uh, actually did the lewis carroll estate ever get in contact with you have you, have you ever heard from them are they are they fans of your games by any chance or don't you don't you know the i mean i've done i've done talks with the lewis carroll society um nothing ever from the estate that i'm aware of right but, yeah yeah um, you know, it's kind of funny because I remember when we released the the original Alice game in 2000, uh, I remember, I can't remember if it was like an open letter or if somebody actually sent me a letter from the society, the Lewis Carroll Society, but I remember getting some kind of communication that what I had done was the devil's work and, you know, how dare you, how dare you do this, sir? Um, but then years later, uh, you know, by the time of, of madness returns people at the Lewis Carroll society were very inviting and warm. And they, they would ask me to, to give talks or to come and visit them and stuff like that, which I did. So that's cool. Um, it, you know, it feels like now um, at least that society embraces a lot of the different mm. variations on, on the original story. Uh, kind of linked to that. Was, is there any other novels or famous stories you would love to, adapt in your own style is there any i spoke about oz obviously wizard of oz but is there any others that you thought what this would be pretty cool um you know honestly um i don't know i you know we did we did red riding hood um as as something called akinero and that got made into a game and now it's also being developed into a potential tv series animated series um so i mean i'm i'm kind of toying around with that and helping the guys that are doing that as well. Um, I don't know. These, these days, not so much. You know, we, we have two kids that are very small. <laughs> one, one is three years old and one is two months. Wow. Two months old. <laughs> answer, um, and that really takes up a lot of time. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I've, I've done this kind of upside down from the way a lot of people do it in life. I had a very crazy, very active uh, 20 to you know, 45 year old life, traveled the world, started companies, you know, moved to China, did all this crazy stuff. Um, and then a few years ago, my wife and I were like, you know, 
let's, let's have some kids. Um, and it, you know, most people do that in their twenties and then around this time they're retiring. Yeah. Well, so this is, this is my new main focus though, is, is yeah, you know, course, ra- yeah. raising kids. Um, and, and we work at home here and we do the plush stuff and I do writing and um, it's, it's, you know, no stress. And I get to spend a bunch of time with the kids. And so that's, right. that's kind of where it's at these days. I'm not really thinking about uh, new, new story ideas these days. Not fair enough. And I'm, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy. You, you've really, you know, you, you seem very happy in your life at the moment. So good on you. Um, couple final questions. What, this is a tough question though, but have you got three, what are your three favorite video games of all time? I don't know this. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll just tell you the ones I played recently. I really enjoyed um, days gone. Uh, I'd say that some, one of the early grand theft autos was the, I think it was GTA three would have to be called one of my favorite games. Cause I remember buying and breaking the disc and buying and breaking and buying and breaking like four or five times. Cause I was so addicted to it. Um, and I liked the later versions, but somehow that was the one that really got me like addicted. Right. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of another recent or a long time ago one. So, so um, I, I don't know. There's so many, uh, I was a big fan of Bioshock back. back yeah. Then, you know? yeah. But I mean, I, I don't know. This is, this is a really hard one. Like if you try to ask me like, what's your favorite movie or what's your, I, I can't, I don't really do those types of questions very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. No, fair enough. Um, have you seen the Alice in Wonderland film, the one with Johnny Depp? I, obviously, that came out after your your games, didn't it? But you, yeah, I felt they were crap. Yep. <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to put words in your mouth, but yeah, I'm not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the original original Disney one. Are you a fan of that? Oh sure. Yeah, I think the original is good, and I think there's a lot of adaptations out there that have been all right, but. Um, there was something in that film that made me so angry and it wasn't the stupid Johnny Depp dancing part at the end. Um, there was this whole movie you watch where it's supposed to be this, this girl who's doing her coming of age story and she's developing and transforming into a woman. And at some point, right when they're just, she's about to go and do the, the, the finale battle against the boss monster, which was the Jabberwock. Someone says, you don't have to do anything. Just let the knife do the work. And I thought like, what a shit story. Like, why would you tell her that like, you've done this whole journey and don't, don't worry about it. The knife will do it. I'm like, what kind of crap is that? Can you imagine at the end of the Harry Potter movies, just like, you know, he's facing off against Voldemort, that yeah. freaking thing was. Um, <laughs> and then somebody being like, don't worry, Harry, just let the wand do the work. You know, like what? <laughs> yeah. It's true. So I, I don't know. Maybe that was their attempt to do like a trust the force type of thing, but it really fell flat on its face. And I, at that, I wanted to walk. And then, and then they followed that up with that dance thing, which I just felt like was so insulting to everybody that was sitting in the audience. It was like a middle finger, like, ha ha, you watch this now. Like here's the stupid dance thing, you know, like what the hell? So yeah, no, I I didn't like those movies at all. No, No, I'm not. I thought it was a silly film, actually. Um, look, American, I've had a really good chat, and I really appreciate your time. I think it's been well. I, I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate you sharing, uh, you know, really just answering the questions really openly. So, thank you. We we always ask our guests this final question. Yeah, it's a, quite a tough question as well. But if you could share a few drinks with any video game character, who would you choose and why? We've, we did kind of mention the Mad well, Hat already, to be fair. <laughs> so, you know, um, the guy that we brought on board to do the writing for the Alice TV show, 
uh, is named named David Hader, and he's the voice of Solid Snake. And I, first of all, when I heard that he was hired on, I was like, yeah. And second of all, because I, I'd actually gone as the box for Halloween one year, like the sneaking around <laughs> box, you know. And uh, so we've managed to have some Skype, you know, Zoom type calls, but I've never met him in person. So I, I think as a as a cheat, as a way of getting to go and have a drink with David, I would say Solid Snake, and then hopefully he would be the one that would show up. Oh, yeah. uh, Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. You can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots more retro gaming goodness and to delve into our archives. Our podcasts are also available on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review and a rating. We'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support Arcade Attack, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash arcadeattack, which will give you access to exclusive podcasts, interviews and other bonus content. So, until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.